Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, welcome to Tabad Lab Live. Tabad Lab is a, is a think tank that is uh, dedicated to a public policy conversation that is both politically robust and enjoys the force of evidence and an appreciation for where we're coming from, where we are, and therefore charting out a, an intelligent and useful, but most importantly, politically robust path forward. Uh, the Bad Lab Live is going to be a, hopefully, a regular and frequent uh, interaction uh, between uh, people who've had the experience of making decisions and of helping frame decisions. Uh, and today we're really lucky to have uh, three fantastic public policy professionals uh, who happen to be uh, friends of mine. Um, and so I'm really privileged and uh, we're, we're all very grateful that we're joined uh, beginning with uh, Madam Hinata Bani Kar, former foreign minister of Pakistan, currently a member of the National Assembly, uh, representing uh, all Pakistani women, but particularly uh, the people of uh, her district, uh, Muzaffargarh. And I'm also honored to welcome uh, Ambassador Muhammad Sadiq. Ambassador Sadiq spent uh, over 30 years uh, serving the Pakistani people through the Foreign Office. And his most recent, uh, and I think most important assignment was that he was the secretary of the National Security Division. But his most exciting work, and, and where I got to know him, was uh, when he was the uh, Pakistani representative, the Pakistani ambassador to Kabul, uh, a relationship that uh, the foreign minister once described as uh, the most important one uh, that Pakistan has. And then finally, I'm really excited and, and really delighted that uh, Joshua White is, uh, is here with us in Islamabad. Uh, Joshua is the former director at the National Security Council and an advisor to the White House, the Barack Obama White House. He spent the last two years of the Obama administration with the, with the White House. Uh, and he had the, I think, privilege, although he may use a different word to describe it, of working on Pakistan, Afghanistan <coughs> and the wider South Asia region. So thank you uh, to all three of you and welcome to Tabad Lab Live. Uh, just to sort of kick off in terms of uh, where we are right now, uh, there's a regional perspective to this question and then there's a Pakistani perspective and there's obviously an Afghan perspective. But the one question that especially a lot of Afghans and Pakistanis and maybe Iranians uh, might have is what exactly is the American perspective? Because you've been in Afghanistan now for almost two decades, and I'm still wondering what exactly it is you're doing in Afghanistan and what you want to be doing. What would make Americans happy in Afghanistan? You start with the easy questions. That's right. We've been there for a very long time. And you know, sometimes in a conflict, you, you lose sight of why you showed up. I think in this case, Americans actually are fairly clear-eyed about why they showed up. They showed up to prevent a return of militant groups that could uh, reach out and cause trouble to Americans and to the, to the United States. And I think in a way that logic is still compelling to most Americans, even though they wonder why are we there in significant numbers? Why has this drug on for so long? So the, the core logic is there, but the debate right now is less about the core logic than whether there is a uh, more minimalist way to achieve those objectives. 
right? And so I think even though uh, President uh, Trump hasn't said it this way, and the people involved in policymaking haven't said it th this way, people are starting to think about whether we can accelerate movement toward a political kind of settlement, uh, and whether there's a way to deal with those fundamental counterterrorism risks with a much larger, uh, sorry, a much smaller footprint, or even no footprint at all in a in a future world where there's a, a political uh, d dispensation that's favorable, and also to think about what kind of risks we can deal with without being present. What kind of risks can we deal with politically or over the horizon with our other capabilities? Uh, it's remarkable that it's taken this long to have that conversation. But I think if anything, the deteriorating security environment, and it is deteriorating, is prompting questions about whether the current course is worth paying for billions of dollars a year for three, four, five, ten years. Right? And so I think that that's, a, that's the state of the conversation uh, just behind the scenes. And uh, it's anchored in those same fundamental concerns that brought us to Afghanistan. What would we like? We would like to have uh, some sort of stable government in Kabul <clears throat> that uh, roughly reflects the will of the people, um, that generally is not amenable to providing space for militant groups that don't like us. Uh, yeah. If we don't have to be there, all the better. There's a view that the United States military really wants to be in Afghanistan. And my Afghan friends in particular, you know, I, I love them, but they see Afghanistan as the center of the world, right? Um, and the reality is that America does not want to be in Afghanistan. Our army would much You guys have a funny way of showing it. We really do. It's taken us a long time to really get express this. Uh, we would rather be doing other things in other places. And it's very expensive. It's hard to get stuff in and out. We don't have a core strategic interest in wanting to have some sort of footprint in the middle of Eurasia, uh, which is now not the way Afghans see it. But we really don't, don't want to be there. And so more and more people are looking for ways that we can serve those objectives without a large-scale presence. One of the things that I find fascinating, uh, Ambassador Sadiq, is uh, and, and this really kind of, you were the one that brought this home for me uh, when I was at the foreign office and, and you were in Kabul, was that everybody seems to talk about Afghanistan from their vantage point. I mean, it's an amazing thing that we started this conversation about the future of Afghanistan a few minutes ago, and we were talking about another country's interests and what, it would, you know, what would it take for them to get out, what, what do they want. Um, and of course, Pakistan also has a number of interests, and, and we'll come to those in a second. But do you find it odd that the question of what Afghans want seems to be a tertiary, at best, a secondary concern for almost every single party, including oftentimes Afghan leaders themselves? What, what, what explains the absence of agency for Afghan voice and Afghan will in this whole dynamic? Uh, you know, actually, Afghanistan is a dilemma. It's a dilemma for Afghans also. It's not only for outsiders. Uh, Joshua said that the United States want a peaceful, stable Afghanistan where, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the groups which could hurt U.S. interests, they are not in power, essentially. And that was the crux of the... Uh, if you ask me Pakistan's perspective, I'll tell you, you know, we want a peaceful, friendly Afghanistan, right? You ask this question from Chinese, from Iranians, from Indians, roughly it will be the same answer. But actually, this is not the end game. Right? Uh, when you look at it from the Afghan perspective, uh, if you look at the Afghan elite today, 
uh, a continuing conflict in Afghanistan is in their interest because they are, they, are, they, are, they are getting rich. And it's not only the people who are in the government who, who are getting rich, the business community, the elite of our elite. I would say that about 200 families in Afghanistan are getting rich because of this. And these 200 families are deciding the, the fate of Afghanistan and the, the future of conflict in Afghanistan. And it's not only that people who are uh, sort of in Kabul or sitting in cities, they are getting rich. Even Taliban are getting rich. Today, the Taliban movement, you know, their leaders are richer than when they were in the government. When, when, when they were governing Afghanistan, they were very poor. We, we, we have seen it firsthand. Now they are much richer. They have businesses. They have, you know. So war have made everybody rich in Afghanistan. Everybody who matters is rich because of this war. Why would they end this war? Why would they want to end this war? And then, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem is with every country in the world, uh, people think that their country is the most important country. I have a map from Fiji. Right? And if you look at that map, Fiji is in the center of the world. The entire world is around Fiji because, you know, the world is a globe, you know. Right? It's like a football. So every point in, uh, on that football is the center of the world. So, you know, advanced think, think that way. They think that the United States should not leave uh, the way, you know, uh, the, 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 the leftist or the uh, Hulk uh, party at that time thought that uh, Soviets will never leave, you know, and they will continue <coughs> milk that cow. So, you know, the, the, the problem is, uh, I think that none of us, whether it's Pakistan, United States, or Iran, or Russia, or India, or any, nobody sort of is clear about the end game. Uh, all of us have sort of some interest. We want to pursue that interest. What is the end game, and what do you want ultimately out of from uh, you know uh, from Afghanistan? Uh, I don't think that you know, like United States cannot define exactly what end, what is the end game, why they are there, how long they they, they are going to stay there. Similarly, we also don't know that. We, I think that we have not decided uh, that, you know, uh, what kind of end game. Other than, of course, you know, this very formal, standard policy briefs or policy statements, uh, which actually mean nothing when you sort of go in the field, when you actually see, you know, what's happening and how these things will be con concluding. What is the end game? What is the exit strategy? For example, for us, I don't think that we are very clear about it. Uh, and Afghans are even less clear, you know. Sure, but do you think we were ever clear about it? We being the Pakistanis? Uh, I, I don't think that we were very clear about it, yes. We were living by the day, we were just responding more like a reactionary policy mm. on Afghanistan, like practically everything else. So that that is a dilemma, that's a problem, we, we are facing it. And then, you know, generally we think that we understand Afghanistan better than anybody else. That is again another myth, you know. Yeah. We don't understand Afghanistan, honestly. Uh, so, uh, I think that is way more complex for everybody, including for Afghans and uh, for foreign forces there, for Pakistan, for all, all other neighbors. So uh, I think that we are in this for long haul, everybody. That's not comforting at all. <laughs> because because not, when yeah. we talk about the future of Afghanistan and we say the Americans don't know why they're there and they don't well, if really... Well, if you want to go, go to Afghanistan through the garden path, I can take you there. Yeah. You know, but... <laughs> no, no, <laughs> I'm not be honest. No, know? no, of yeah. course. And that, that's, yeah. that's, part of the, that's part of the benefit of having a group like this. Uh -huh. You asked about, or you mentioned, you know, the hard questions and the easy questions. So I saved the easy one for, for um, Madam Hinakar. Um, you've heard Ambassador Sadiq describe the situation... I guess the immediate question that pops to mind is why, after all of what's happened, and we claim uh, an enormous uh, set of damages, mm -hmm. we say that we paid the price in many ways. 
Sometimes I think we're not too self-conscious about it because there'll be an Afghan sitting at the table and we'll say, we've been paying the price for the gun. It's like, well, yes, of course we have, but you know, the Afghans have paid a, a greater price. But the, but the more fundamental question is why we keep paying the price and why we haven't figured out what we want. If the price has been so high, shouldn't there be a point in time where we actually ask what we're doing there? And when you asked yourself that question, how did you, how did you resolve it when you were foreign minister? Well, first of all, uh, it's interesting because uh, this has been an ongoing, uh, you know, what you call a dilemma, or I would call an unanswerable sort of question, right? And uh, I, I, I would like to believe uh, and, uh, that we have uh, greater clarity on what the end game ought to be. At least I, I would claim I did have that clarity and we tried to uh, put it and he was our uh, so Quarter person of yeah, the, yeah. Yes, and the reason why we were able to be relatively successful. And, and, and the problem, the dilemma in Afghanistan is that the entry goals, as Joshua also described them, were even more fanciful than what you described them. Okay, so it was uh, by way of Americans' own literature, we wanted to create an Alice in Wonderland over there, and we believed that we could really create this... Uh, the Asian Switzerland. Switzerland. Yeah, literally, quite literally. Yeah, yeah. That we would come and uh, suddenly all the bad guys would go away and we would elect all the good guys, host to government, and this government will then serve the people happily ever after. Now, nothing like that has ever happened in Afghanistan before or is likely to happen in the near future also. So the entry goals were so, uh, in some ways, delusional mm -hmm. that I think that itself uh, kept us from achieving what was perhaps a realistic thing that we could achieve. Now, I do believe very, very strongly, and this is what we tried to do when we were in government, that it is not our business to have an endgame in Afghanistan. I, I'm, I'm saying as much as that because it is uh, our interests stop on the borders of Pakistan. That is what, to me, geographical borders represent. That a government within that country needs to have an endgame for that particular country. Uh, whatever uh, passionate uh, you know, dreams you may have, Let's restrict them to Baluchistan and to Pakhtunkhwa, uh, now Pata, which is also part of Pakhtunkhwa, uh, Punjab, and Sindh, right? That is where it ends. And so Azad Jammu and Kashmir. And of course, Azad Jammu and Kashmir. The problem with Afghanistan is exactly that, that everybody feels they know what ought to be done in Afghanistan. And uh, I remember during our time, and uh, you know, both of you were there, uh, that was the struggle that we were trying to tell the whole world that we have to be around a certain, you know, power base or a certain set of ideas, a certain set of end games, certain set of what is it that we're trying to achieve. And that cannot be determined by the Americans or the Chinese or the Indians or the Pakistanis. It has to be determined by the Afghans themselves. Mm. And what Sadiq has described is the answer to the problem because the Afghans who are now sitting in seats of government and have been sitting in seats of government do not actually have an interest in resolving the problem because they are currently beneficiaries of a situation which is gotten out of control. And let's not mince words or try and be uh, sort of, you know, try and uh, keep ourselves happy by saying that much has not been lost. I think a lot has been lost. And I remember as foreign minister when I went to the NATO headquarters to speak to the NATO ambassadors over there, you know, when, when you also, which you have just now talked about, how we say we paid a price. The fact is this region has paid a price. We are not kidding anyone when we say sure. we paid a price because if the end goal or the entry goal was more peace, more stability, less conflict, less terrorism, guess where we are, or where we were at least, till Pakistan really started off with operations inside, till the Musharraf era in Pakistan, the other Musharraf, 
General Musharraf, we were uh, trying to just manage the situation and not take them head on. And till that time, conflict had increased, terrorism had increased. We did not have pre 9/11. We had one single suicide bomb attack, and after that, you know, in one year, we had 300 plus, right? And in many years, we continue to have. So the situation for the region clearly has not improved, right? Now, my problem, or what makes me less optimistic, is that with the Geneva which has just happened, with the new representatives which are coming in from the US and from Mr. Dagzoi, who we all know very well, and I believe personalities are important. I mean, I'm sitting over here and I'm saying, if Sadiq was not there as our ambassador, we could not have achieved what we feel we did achieve in the People's Party, you know, vis-a-vis Afghanistan, because we were very clear that we are going to continue to be friendly towards them, no matter what they do, yeah. right? So, the, 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 the issue right now is that the fact remains that interventions in the last two decades, any intervention, my viewers, have not gained us much, right? And perhaps what we need to do is revisit the terms of intervention and how we do those interventions. And maybe the new age and the new world is not offering us great opportunities in the traditional way of doing interventions, which are against, sometimes we use tools which are against international law. And we then become bigger than our boots, right? We become bigger than uh, the UN and whatever. So we're breaking all the rules and trying to Correct. So we become like thugs. We become like, uh, you know, people who have power, who are going to try and fix the situation without any rules, without any rules of engagement. With and we, frankly speaking, at the end of the day, people who suffer the most are the people who are on the ground, are the poor Afghans who are continuing to be living in refugee camps, who have no source of living within Afghanistan, who are at the literally center of the conflict, whether it's between the Afghan government or the Taliban and the other forces were all trying to country, every, every country, country. Every country. country. Whether it's neighbor, all of our neighbor, the country sitting oceans away. Seems to have an interest in this. And this is unfortunately, You know, this idea about... Because in a way you alluded to it as well, and of course, Sadiq Saab talked about it, uh, more more explicitly about the Afghan elite. I mean, this is an argument, I mean, this is an argument actually that gets used against uh, Pakistan as well. That the Pakistani elite, of which you know, fair to say, uh, you know, this conversation is also in many ways it's an elite conversation. That the elite in Pakistan and the elite in Afghanistan, they don't really like their people and they try and squeeze you know other countries and extract rent. I mean, this is the typical Washington D.C. Beltway kind of narrative about about Pakistani elites and frankly about Afghan elites, but it gets buried under people's uh, animus for Pakistan these days. The fact of the matter is, whether it's the Afghan elite or the Pakistani elite, they actually have suffered. There isn't a member of the Afghan elite who hasn't suffered a family member dying. And a family member dying in most cases through terrible, brutal circumstances. The Pakistani elite is under the gun. I mean, we've had incidents in this country that really undermined the sustainability of the Pakistani model. Of course, Pakistan is a lot more fortunate than, than Afghanistan, and you know, by accident of history and, and for many other reasons. But I wonder if it's Joshua. Joshua, I wonder what you feel about this this kind of line of arguing that we need other people to care about the poor in Afghanistan or the poor in Pakistan because the elite don't take care of them. Because frankly, one could turn that around and say to the American elite. 
you guys bankrupted, you know, grandma's pension to, to save, you know, to, to save, you know AIG and, and, and Wall Street. And not once. And not once. I mean, you can keep doing it. And then you elect governments that essentially serve the very same interests that keep getting bailed out. So I think if we start playing the elite blame game, then actually every elite in every country is, is pretty exploited. How do we get out of this kind of merry-go-round of tagging others with the responsibility when actually uh, there needs to be probably a little bit more of an assessment within the elite of each country as to how they've engaged their, their national interests in a place like Afghanistan? Yeah, the American, uh, the American elite have a lot to account for. Uh, and I think in our recent elections, uh, this has been a big part of the, the discourse. Yeah. You know, you were exactly right when you called out my representation of the U.S. objective in Afghanistan as being narrower than originally construed, right? And I think what I was identifying is a sort of the core thread that runs from days after 9-11 to the present day. But your point was important because uh, we have gradually, not of our own volition, but out of uh, a sense of realism, scaled down our ambitions, step by step by step, to the point where our ambitions really are, and I was a little bit oblique about this, but I can be more explicit. Uh, That's why it's an hour, because we're going to draw you out. Right. <laughs> a government that does not collapse. Yeah. And can hold Kabul and the major cities, mm -hmm. right? Um, a government that's not riven by internal infighting, right? Uh, uh, a government or a, a sort of constitutional construction that doesn't you know, dramatically reverse the gains that we've seen that are, are important uh, with respect to health education and gender equality. But even those, even that, by that standard, but the objectives I want, are, I want to challenge are, are, are falling away. But let me, <laughs> our objectives are, are narrowing very significantly to focus simply on how we achieve the core narrowest objective for which we came. And when you have a narrow objective like, like that, um, you end up engaging less with the Afghan people at large, and you eventually end up engaging less even with the elites. And I think we see this in the process now of talking with the Taliban, where the United States has said, you know, not only are we not going to engage as much with the broader civil society conversation, uh, but we are going to sort of take the bull by the horns, talk with the Taliban, and keep the Afghan government in the loop on this, but not wait around for the Afghan government to come up with a clear, coherent, directive approach for, for doing so. And it's, it's in many ways unfortunate, but it is a product of narrowing our objective. Okay, so, very so, so, so I think that's exactly what, what Anna earlier alluded to. Mm -hmm. You know, when she said we've become like thugs, I should clarify what she was saying. She's basically saying Ambassador Khalilzad goes into Afghanistan and with no care or consideration for the national unity government's own objectives and its own list of interlocutors, basically engages a whole range of actors and goes to eight or nine different countries talking about this other country. So, so I think you've kind of described in, in softer terms what, what, what the former foreign minister just described. But I wanted to, I wanted to challenge you on, on whether this narrowing is like from 9-11 to now. 
Because I think this narrowing is every time there is any point of inflection in Afghanistan. I remember distinctly, and I know you do too, and I know Sadek will, and and, uh, and Hina will too. We know for a fact that when uh, the first Karzai term was ending, there's a massive fallout between him and uh, Peter Galbraith. And uh, I remember the way that Eikenberry used to talk about the whole situation in Afghanistan, and I know all, all, all four of us do. Then we remember the second uh, Karzai government, and the exact same dynamic took place. And by that time, the ambassadors didn't matter as much, and the military leadership of the U.S., basically openly contemptuous of President Karzai and, and, you know, like stories being leaked to the press about, you know, some nasty stuff about like drug abuse and, and all the games that we're used to in Pakistan because every elected leader ends up, you know, having some story or the other. Our stories start in the first two or three months of uh, being elected. In, in Afghanistan, you guys used to get tired of them, you know, closer to an election. And we see it happening again now. I mean, I've rarely seen the kind of disrespect and this is for all countries, not just the Americans. The kind of disrespect that is being meted out to the national unity government in the way that they're being treated by the entire international community. Why? Because suddenly, you know, everybody's got a crush on the Taliban. The same Taliban that basically were responsible for hosting the 9-11 uh, sort of, you know, attack planners and financiers now are being, are being charmed by the same country that actually was attacked by the 9-11 by, by, by attackers. So to me, I'm a little bit like, what just happened here? And if I'm feeling like that, I can only imagine how young Afghans would be feeling. How do we, how do we respond to that? Is, is it just a cyclical thing? We, we have a lot of hope. We bring in Ashraf and, uh, and Abdullah Abdullah on a national unity government construct, because otherwise the thing was gonna, you know, it was gonna go to the, you know, to the dogs. Um, now there's another election coming in April, and we're tired of Ashraf Ghani, so now we're running around doing the, the thing that uh, the minister just said. Is that, uh, former minister, is that, is that fair? I don't think it's entirely fair. Okay. No, I, I don't think there's a lot of, I forget what, you didn't say love, there's, a, there's not a lot of uh, charming going on between the United States and the Taliban. I think this is a, this is a very uh, unsentimental calculation by the United States that if we were to continue to pursue a policy of Afghan-owned and Afghan-led talks, we would never get to the Afghan-led part, in part because of the divisions within the Afghan government, in part because of, you know, I have great respect for, for Ghani. He's, he's brought a huge uh, amount of energy to, to his job, uh, but he tends to micromanage processes, and in part because any meaningful negotiations probably have to be small and for the most part secret. Mm -hmm. That is how peace talks start and gain momentum. And then at a later stage, you expose them to the light of day and you expose them to the various interests. But the idea that you can have an engagement between the United States and the Taliban and a very large, loud, uh, complicated Afghan polity, I think is unrealistic. Okay. And so I think this is a concession to reality, even though the signals that it sends are, uh, are really challenging. Sure. The signals that it sends so, to the Afghans. So, so here's what's really funny about what you just articulated. Since 2001, October 2001, the Pakistani position, the private Pakistani position, but one that's well known and owned uh, publicly when it needs to be, 
is that Pakistan has been asking the Americans to do exactly what Joshua just described. Now, we're a little come, slow. Now, it, it, now, if, it somebody, takes a if somebody had, if somebody had, had had a love child in 2001, that child would be 18 years old right now. <laughs> He'd be driving. She'd be driving, hopefully. Yeah. You know, so, so here's my question. Finally, the Americans are doing exactly what we've asked them to do. Our children have grown into adults in the meantime, but no problem. Finally, the Americans are on the same page as the Pakistanis. What is our problem now? Uh, you know, actually, I, I look at it a little differently. United States was always in touch with Afghanistan. They were talking to them. They were meeting them in, in Doha and other places. Uh, but they, they did not make it public. Only thing which, which happens with Khalilzad now is, you know, they are making it public. So essentially, uh, I'm sure Joshua is very well aware of it. There, there were uh, contacts between Taliban, their Qatar office, and, and the United States. Uh, uh, but like till this year, United States was very careful. They did not want to annoy the government in Kabul. Uh, I, I think that now finally, just can, uh, you know, the United States has concluded that, you know, they, they have to do it directly. And they can sort of, you know, they can annoy the national unity government in Kabul and they can still get away with it. Uh, so I think that that's the, uh, uh, I, I mean, this is how I, I, I read it. Uh, because, I mean, at least I'm aware of more than 20 contacts between sure. United States, sure. U.S. officials sure. and Taliban. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, they were, they were never made public. Uh, now, you know, problem for Pakistan, like, when I was ambassador there also, when I was dealing with that, then Sec Secretary National Security Division also, and now, of course, after I'm unburdened, you know, from these official responsibilities and can talk more frankly and openly. You know, Pakistan's problem is nobody wants Pakistan in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. let's, let's be very honest about it. Uh, 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 you know, I, I cannot kind of sort of pinpoint a single country which would welcome us in Afghanistan. They, would, they don't want to see us there. Uh, because, you know, we have occupied a lot of space, uh, especially in past, we, we, we had occupied a lot of space in, in Afghanistan. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we lost it. We are losing it, uh, losing it uh, even further. Uh, and this vacuum is being filled by other countries. Uh, uh, it, it, now, somehow, the impression of the world about us is our influences is bad, is negative, you know. Uh, we fail to change that uh, perception. We fail to change that perception. Uh, what is our problem? Uh, like Pakistan was given credit uh, uh, when last Eid, Eid al-Fitr, uh, the truce, that truce, you know, Pakistan was given credit for that uh, publicly. Although Ashraf Ghani did not give us credit that much, and he tried to take that credit himself, and because that annoyed, that annoyed Taliban, actually. Yeah. Because, because, you know, he uh, sort of the, the, the government spokesman started saying that, well, Taliban are weaker, therefore they accepted this truce. And that was a bad thing to do. Nobody's talking about it in Afghanistan or here, or nobody's probably analyzing it. But the moment they, the spokesman started saying that, you know, Taliban backed off. And although there was an unannounced truce on, on, uh, uh, on Eid al-Azhar, yeah. it was not announced, but much, much low profile and not, not, not publicized much. Uh, but I think that that initiative was lost because because of the impatience or over-enthusiasm of the Afghan, I mean, Ashraf Ghani himself and then the Afghan, Afghan spokesman, uh, spokespersons. Uh, if credit were given to Taliban and, you know, if, if they had said that, well, Taliban sort of did something positive because they're Afghans and they want peace in Afghanistan, therefore they came. The, I think that things would have been different. Not, not much different, but slightly better than where, where, where we stand today. Uh, 
uh, now you know the U.S. military leadership. Uh, you know they are making public statements that Taliban are very strong. We can't defeat right. them. They can take yeah. over take over Afghanistan. I think this is also a bit of exaggeration. You know, mm. uh, probably I don't know why, but probably putting pressure on the Afghan uh, sort of unity government, the national unity government, probably putting pressure on Ashraf Ghani and Abdullah Abdullah and, and all that. Uh, uh, well, Taliban can create a lot of problems. They can they are controlling parts of Afghanistan even today. Uh, and they can control more parts also. Okay. And like, firstly in Kunduz and spe specifically, particularly in, in Ghazni, they have proven their capability. Yeah. Uh, but the response was very strange because uh, like it was known for weeks that they were gathering in three places, you know, three sides of Ghazni, you know, they are, they are gathering and they were preparing for an attack, but nothing was done to, to, to stop them. And they entered the city and they literally butchered the elite Afghan forces, 100, a unit of 100, Top, top, most, most of them trained, I think, in U.S. Yes. They butchered them, all of them. You know, so, uh, you know, it demoralized the Afghan National Army. It yeah. was demoralized already, and it demoralized them very, sort of, uh, because that was very strategic, I would say that. They targeted the the the, the special forces. Yeah. Uh, which which are pride, pride of Afghan of, Army. Exactly. Uh, Afghan yeah. Army, and, and Afghan Army thought that, well, they can defeat the normal unit, but they can't defeat them. And they killed them, actually, not defeated them. They literally wiped out the entire entire unit. So uh, I, I think that there, there are issues which you cannot explain why, why these things these things happen. Well, the uh, one and then thing now, now in world capitals, Afghan representative, representatives are, are, are received as diplomats, you know, accepted as yeah. a kind of future government or something. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's getting more difficult, it's getting messier. Uh, and it's we, also... Hmm. Just on the on the point, sorry, sorry to cut you off. It's all. I mean, I think you you're absolutely right. It is getting messier. One of the places where it's getting messier uh, is is within Pakistan, because you know, as a Pakistani, when I hear uh, Sadiq Sab say, you know, all the countries in the world they don't want Afghanistan, uh, they don't want Pakistan in Afghanistan. You know what I think? I think wow, that's interesting because Afghanistan is way up all over Pakistan. Afghanistan is in Peshawar, it's in Quetta, it's in Lahore, it's in Islamabad, it's in Karachi. And I could go on because I would I need to say that actually. two and a half, three million times before we've counted yeah. Afghanistan and Pakistan. The point isn't that Pakistan shouldn't have opened its doors to Afghan refugees, especially for me personally. I think there's a, there's a number of reasons why Pakistan's refugee policy is actually something we should be very proud of. But... And we've discussed this before, so this is kind of a setup, but I'm amazed at how much Pakistan has done and how little credit Pakistan gets. Why is it that Pakistan, which has been this amazing, warm, unbelievably generous country to its Afghan brothers and sisters, finds it impossible to get one positive sentence out of those same brothers and sisters when somebody asks them, hey, what do you think of Pakistan? Okay, so the answer is very simple. And honestly speaking, I think Theoretically and pra practically, if we are able to unbundle everything, things are not as complicated or complex or impossible as we think. So when Sadiq says, I find it very interesting, when Sadiq says that nobody wants Pakistan and Afghanistan, if Pakistan was smart, the last thing Pakistan would want is Pakistan and Afghanistan. Okay? If wanting Pakistan and Afghanistan has been the flawed, most flawed, and we've had many flawed foreign policy objectives. But this has been my favorite, most flawed foreign policy objective that has been incentivized by military regimes in Pakistan. Okay, so this concept of strategic depth has literally 
given us everything wrong in this country. Okay, so our, 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 our love for uh, that concept, which is a completely flawed concept, because, you know, we also started saying during our tenure that we don't want a friendly government. It's not yeah. necessary that it be a friendly government, yeah. because it's within its own borders. Yeah. We want a stable. Stability is what Pakistan wants, right? Uh, prosperous, yes, we would hope eventually prosperous. But wanting Pakistan and Afghanistan is the last thing that Pakistan should want because it is what has, in some ways, destroyed the very fabric of Pakistani society. Wanting to keep their own, you see, because I, I, I always like to look at the urban problem from a Pakistani lens, and I think uh, what we did uh, trying to restrict the Soviet, you know, stronghold or presence in Afghanistan uh, has had an impact on Pakistan, which we're still suffering from, right? Because we are, as I've always said, both in government and government, we were the only country in the world which allowed the Afghans to come freely, not restricted to any refugee camps, but all over the place, fair enough, brotherly sort of, you know, just if, if you had been in charge at that time, would you have allowed that? I, I believe being selfish is the most profoundly unselfish thing you can do to yourself. Okay, so you, your job as a government or as a country or as a state is to defend your own national core interest. And your national core interest requires you to be first protective of the people who are your responsibility, which are the people which are within your borders. You are friendly, you are correct, humanitarianly, towards the Afghans, towards the Afghan people, but you uh, allow them to come in through a legal process, stay through a legal process, and then create the circumstances, or when the circumstances are created, allow them to. Because, you see, it's quite nice, because our Prime Minister recently made a statement, and I am, very humanitarian on it. I'm very, very humanitarian. I can vouch for that. Yes, I can vouch. On the fact that all Afghans should be given nationalities. And my question was, have we done our homework on ensuring that the people who currently have their nationalities, such as the girls who have been born in Muzaffargarh, have their right to education, clean drinking water and health, that we are taking on the responsibility of ensuring that we are giving more citizenships to people who... So you're being unfair both to your own people who are currently residing within your families and to the others. So this seems to be a problem which has been made far more complex than if really everyone, including Joshua's country, were to mind their own business and do it. By the way, let's not be philanthropic about it and cool about it. In terms of largesse that now we are becoming, we are just suffering from a lot of exhaustion and fatigue. And therefore, every country in the world is now, you know, taking off the gloves, taking off the mask and saying, let's deal with whoever is the real problem. Because I've made it the Taliban. Whether they reside in Afghanistan or in Pakistan, I have no love lost and refused for Pakistan to become their spokesperson. And I think we have enough witnesses in this room to say that Pakistan is not the spokesperson. But if they are a reality in the landscape of a certain country, and if you are a reality in the landscape of a certain country, you have troops there, that country's territorial integrity and its sovereignty, etc., you have troops. So then saying, oh no, no, we are not going to negotiate, and we are negotiating, but we are not going to... So let's, you know, get, cut the crap, come to the table, say it as it is, Afghan-led, Afghan-owned, very nice, all of us have been saying it, right? We need to get the work done, and for that, my... Because, I, you know, I want to say it, because it's been 10 years I've been saying it, uh, that when you go into negotiation, what is the problem? Why have negotiations been very unsuccessful? I just want to make two important points over here. First of all, to... Till today, despite a lot of changing dynamics, the U.S. stated policy on Afghanistan and peace and reconciliation on Afghanistan, the last stated written policy I saw was President Trump's statement, which he read out, which seemed to be an institutional view. Secretary Pompeo was quick to retort on Foreign Minister Kurishi's comments, 
that this policy <coughs> still holds, right? So we're playing on the periphery right now, taking off the gloves, etc., trying everything. But as far as the, you know, the real policy, the stated policy, so we're still testing. Yeah. Then I was surprised in that policy because after 17 years of being in there, when you say something like, after having tried military options, we will perhaps come to, yeah, after having tried, what are we talking about? So it's, it's all going to come down to getting minimum, minimum uh, goals and objectives which are achievable. And secondly, you cannot enter a negotiation process without having anything to give. I've been saying this for the last 10 years. What is it that we are willing to give? This question we've been answering, asking, are, we, we, not, we shouldn't be major players, right? But the Afghans and the Americans who have presence over there, what is it that you're willing to give in this negotiation? Because you know what you're holding today. You know what you want from the, but what is it that you're willing to give? Have you put that on the table? Can I just speak to this? This is a hugely important point. And for years, the United States, particularly the Defense Department, which has a lot of interests in Afghanistan, has told the diplomats within our system, go ahead, talk to the Taliban, however you see fit, but don't put our, don't put our stuff in play. And at the end of the day, if you do a basic analysis of the, of the conflict, the Taliban say they want us gone. Uh, they probably want other yes. things, but I do believe them that more or less, caveat, caveat, they want us gone. So unless we are ready to sit down and say, here's where we are, we're going to put some of those, uh, our, our presence, our posture, where it is, what we're doing in play in the negotiation, we get nowhere. And this is where I don't have a, a lot of wonderful things to say about President Trump, but I do think that this dimension of the U.S. approach recently is welcome because for the, for the first time there seems to be some pressure within the U.S. system to say, let's look at what we have, let's look at where we are, and let's put some of this in play, right? Because you're right, you can't come to a negotiation and just tell people what you want. Particularly when the balance of power is slowly eroding in favor of the other side, which it is. The Taliban are slowly gaining territory and influence. Not dramatically, but gradually and visibly. So in such an environment, it's completely unrealistic to just demand. And so I'm, I think this is beginning to happen. One challenge is that President Trump ha has stopped reporting how many troops we have in Afghanistan, where they are, what they're doing. So it's a little difficult to say we'll reduce the number when nobody knows what the number is. But there's there's a process in play to actually move into a real direction. So, <laughs> you know, it really scares me when Americans talk about leaving. Because Pakistan has suffered a superpower leaving before. You know, it's all well and fine, as you were saying, and, and, and you know that I'm, I'm a huge advocate of that. I mean, we have to be internally accountable. We have, we're answerable for our own country's situation. I think all of us agree and, and we feel strongly about that. But to pretend that like Pakistan just woke up one morning and decided to be in Afghanistan, that's not really what happened. The Soviet Union, the big red machine, came and drove a truck bomb into, into Pakistan called Afghanistan and it blew up and we've been, we've been dealing with the consequences. So, and then 
That wasn't the worst thing they did. The worst thing they did was the, 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 the conclusion of the Geneva Accord was not exactly the way it should have been. It was not inclusive. The thing that Pakistan was saying about the Taliban for the last 18 years, Pakistan was also saying about the PDP government. You know, there's this impression that the Pakistanis were always against Najibullah and everything. It's factually incorrect. Pakistan wanted the Mujahideen to talk to Najibullah and to create a genuine Afghan-led, Afghan-owned situation. But the Soviet Union had to run because Mikhail Gorbachev was doing, what was it called? Perestroika? Or? Perestroika. Right. You know, and, uh, and here we are. It's four decades on from 1978. It's, this is the 40th anniversary this year of, of the catastrophe. It started in December, and this is December 2018. And 40 years on, now we're hearing another great superpower. A I've always believed in many ways a moral superpower that is invested in the immoral urgency to get up and leave without actually leaving behind something that won't destroy Pakistan further than it already has. So from a Pakistani perspective, and especially from an Afghan perspective, because the worst years in Afghanistan, I think by consensus, were probably 92 to 99, or, or 2001 if you, know, if you want to be American about it. What, is there a chance that you're going to do to Afghanistan what the Soviets did? There's a chance. Okay. And I'm probably about as scared of that as you are. You know, there is a, there's a policy dialogue in Washington that's very strange right now. And it basically, on the one hand, people who say we have to stay the course, just keep doing what we're doing. On the other hand, emerging voices that say we should leave. And I think it's, a, it's dangerous to frame the problem that way, because at some point, if policymakers, people in Congress are told you have the choice to keep doing what we're doing or to leave, leaving starts to look kind of attractive. Yeah. Right? Because why would we keep doing the same thing and expect a different result, mm -hmm. right? So a binary policy choice actually makes it more likely, in my view, that President Trump or somebody else says, look, let's pull the, let's pull the plug. The problem is that when you begin talking about things outside of this binary choice, things that are, more, that are uglier, things where you don't get everything that you want, things where you have to maybe twist some arms in the Afghan government and other reg regional partners, right? It creates some political turmoil and people wonder well, what's going on. But I would rather be in that ugly space than a place where we pretend that we can keep doing what we're doing, just keep shelling out money, and it's going to be okay. So I think I'm on the same page as you, but I wonder whether maybe we haven't learned any lessons from being in the ugly place, because in some ways we've been in the ugly place now for one full decade. Because it was in 2008, you'll remember, that the conversation started about some sort of a, a resolution and an exit. And a lot of Democrats, especially progressive ones in the US, were really excited about what Obama was gonna come and say at West Point. But over the course of the three months leading up to the West Point speech in 2009, and that was also in December, uh, we know what happened. We know that President Obama basically didn't cave in entirely to the kind of John Nagel end of things, but but caved partially. And so the, the surge in Afghanistan was neither a surge nor did it do anything for Afghanistan. It kind of put us in that, that ugly, messy place that you're just talking about. In many ways, we're still kind of there. Is there, maybe Sadiq Saab, is there any, is there any merit in just pulling the plug? I, I think that the United States is not going to leave the way we sort of thinking about so, Soviet Union leaving Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, the 
So it's not only the Afghan elite, but there are very strong parts of the Afghan population. They want the United States to stay there. And United States, well, did a lot of negative things, but contributed positively also to at least parts of Afghanistan, at least half of the Afghanistan. Like they, they have better roads today than ever before. They have more schools, they have more universities, health facilities. You know, a, lot, a lot of positive things also have happened. I mean, so much young money. Afghan people, they're yeah. totally different. They're yes. so confident and, yeah. and talented. And, and uh, Yeah, part, so in, 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 in parts of Afghanistan, not sure. entire, not, not sure. the entire in, country. In I would say that in about 30% of the country, the young Afghan people have changed actually, yeah. uh, but not like territorially, you know, not across okay. the board. Okay. Uh, but you know, you have these strong pockets of support for the United States there. So there is not no real pressure on the United States to leave because you know, like it's not, uh, it's not Vietnam where there's a lot of pressure or it's not Soviet Union and Afghanistan where, you know, like they, they were getting beat became, bad, and yeah. the entire world was fighting there. Yeah. You know, it's just not the same situation in Afghanistan. Uh, secondly, you know, United States have, paid the price, the maximum price in blood and, 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 and treasure already. What, what is happening now, you know, the price is very sort of very low for them. It, it, can, it can retain that. Uh, it can retain the occupation or stay in Afghanistan for, for so a So it's period. kind of like the marginal yes, return, the marginal mar cost. The marginal, yeah. marginal cost. Now the cost is very marginal. Uh, and then, you know, the problem with the United States is, you know, the average age of a policy is between six months to one year. You know, the policy changes. Sure. You know, so, you know, if you are there for 18 years, you there are 18. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you can wait them out, you know, you can wait them out. But, uh, uh, you know, then Taliban also, they understand that they, they cannot run over Afghanistan. They cannot control the, the entire country. There are certain benefits Taliban are getting from this, from this war and the U.S. presence, uh, US presence there. Uh, so I, I think that United States is not going to leave. Maybe they, they'll reduce their numbers there, their number of troops. Then they will increase it again, reduce it, stay only in the bases, maybe continue staying there, uh, like providing training to the uh, Afghan forces or uh, civil servants and capacity building. Uh, but, but these things will happen. But United States is, I think, I think going to going to stay there and the uh, sort of the neighboring countries have to sort of gear up for that. And, you know, they have to keep that as a given in their policy towards Afghanistan. But maybe that explains, uh, uh, you know, maybe that explains the, I mean, in a sense, if the Pakistani security establishment in particular has kind of made a calculation, the kind of calculation that I think quite rightly, uh, Sadiq Saab and, uh, and Joshua Saab both have said, then what incentive for disruption does the Pakistani state have? Why should Pakistan sort of somersault backwards or forwards to try and enable a process whose outcome isn't guaranteed? If our analysis is that the process is just meant to be a process, it's just about rolling over the tide, getting past maybe April, which is the election, maybe the election in India, because of course for Pakistan, the India factor is a vital one. We haven't talked about it much because I think you know, it often gets, doesn't get talked about in the right way. But India does have legitimate interest in Afghanistan and Pakistan does have a legitimate interest in, in checking that. So, so if, if there's no clear outcome, what incentive do we have as Pakistanis to, to prompt our leadership, civilian and military, to come up with a definitive answer? What do you want? Because they'll say, hey, 
Let the big guy decide what they want, and we'll figure out what we want when they tell us what they want. And this kind of poker keeps going on. Uh, uh, if we, with your permission and with your permission, I could say just two sentences. You know, actually, practically Pakistan is now practically saying publicly that you don't, do not want United States to leave. Actually, mm -hmm. you are now saying it. Yeah. You are saying it privately before, but now you know practically. You know this. This. This is what's happening. It's actually the repeat of what when the Soviets are leaving, yeah. and we were telling them to delay their departure. Yeah. So you know, we are actually. You know, back, yeah, to, yeah, back, back to the... Uh, which okay. is why I brought it up. Yes, and yes, which is why it scares yeah, me yeah, yeah. That, that Joshua says that if the momentum... See, the pressure isn't on right now. Yeah. And the pressure isn't battlefield pressure. Yeah. But it could be that a year from now, there's like a Washington movement across both Republican and, uh, and, and Democrat, conservative and progressive, both pushing yeah. the uh, administration to just yank... But leave, but maybe reduce their numbers, you know. And do you think that Iran wants the United States to leave? No. Russia, do you, do you think that they want them to leave? Do you think China want them to leave? So why should Afghan want them to leave? You know, so you know, like we have to keep that in mind. So that's that's a very different than the position of Of course, yes. State, state of position are different, yes. So I want to like believe. Yeah. Uh, right. I still disagree with. Right. <laughs> I still disagree. With. And I want to like. I did it. Yeah. I finally. <laughs> see, my my big, big thing was, was why why, why, why does she keep listening to the Foreign Service? Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> To me, the slightly imperfect world, which is perhaps achievable, is this region finding some regionalism. Okay, because without that, this every country, including the rising, shining, now quite, quite unsecured in India, uh, each one, one of the countries of the hardest region is continues to suffer until they do not come to demand something. Now, I don't need to give examples of ASEAN and No, I, I think that all, all these neighboring countries, they, they see a benefit 
in the United because States, stay in Afghanistan. Because they feel the security situation will deteriorate. Mm, maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe China would think, think that way. Right. Yes, maybe China. You know, like Iran, Iran can hurt the United States only if they are present in, in Afghanistan. For all, for all the Russia, bad reasons. Yes, so, yeah, for the bad reasons so, mostly. So, yes, so yeah, that's uh, what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Whether you look at it from paranoia or for having an excuse to act badly. Right. Okay, so if these are the two reasons that everybody wants the United States presence in Afghanistan, I think these are very bad reasons, right? And eventually, uh, much as uh, it is clear that we are not anywhere close to a very stable Afghanistan on its own, but that's the only real solution, right? So if we're not moving towards it, then um, Sharif, it's not uh, difficult to reach the conclusion that we are again moving in circles. And we have moved in circles for 40 years, okay? So the cost of not doing anything different is very, very high. I looked at missed opportunities as very costly, okay? And as foreign minister, I've had the privilege of looking at the missed opportunities vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan and India, the Rajiv Gandhi, Benzi Bhutto, signing, etc., etc., okay? And decades pass by, and we degenerate worse and worse in our animosity, in the soup of hatred that we create over there. I think this region really needs a clean break. Okay, and I think this region will only get a clean break with these half-bred solutions and this being forced out, etc. You know, uh, do I think it's possible? Currently, no. Okay, because I don't think we're all smart enough, sage enough, uh, or uh, mature enough. And I think a very good example is what you said, that every time, you, you know, I think as Pakistanis also we need to ask ourselves the question, if from the last 18 years we've been telling the world what is perhaps the correct solution or the correct advice in Afghanistan, why doesn't the world want to leave that? Exactly. Yeah. A, I think that's a question. Yeah. So, so let me, I, I think just to kind of wrap up, um, Joshua, and I, I'll bring it back to you. In fact, I was going to sort of frame this for you. Uh, Hina just said that, you know, we're not mature and wise enough. And I think she's right. I think India is actually behaving incredibly unlike India. There's nothing sort of Zen or yoga about the way India is behaving. Um, Pakistan, of course, is a very young country. I think Pakistan can be forgiven for, for being worried about its territorial integrity, given its history. It can be forgiven for worrying about what happens in Afghanistan, given the refugee sort of challenge. But there is one country that actually is quite mature in this region. And I think the question about where the solution is going to come from or who the disruptor or the guarantor is going to be, I think could be China which then loops me back to the paranoia that I'm not sure Uncle Sam would ever want a situation in which this multi-decade crisis is resolved visibly by, by, the, uh, by Beijing. I think you're wrong. Really? Yeah. I, I think that uh, the United States has been relatively pleased with China's modestly more engaged posture. And then if by some miracle China decided to be much more engaged to the point of taking some of the burden from the United States, helping us with the transition, I think we'd be happy about that. I don't think it's likely. I don't think that's how China rolls. That's not how, what they do. But I don't think we would be displeased to, to see that. So I want to say, finally, I, I very much think that a regional conversation is important. I think that a regional solution, you know, it's sort of a, it's a truism, is the only solution. But I also think that for so long, people in the United States have made a regional solution or a regional understanding some sort of prerequisite for moving forward mm -hmm. in engagement with the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see 
the, the history of peace negotiations working that way. You need the few people in the room hashing out an ugly but maybe workable solution, and then you expose it to the wider community, you see how they respond, and then everybody else thinks whether they can live with that imperfect solution. And, and do you think the Khalilzad process offers us that window? I think it offers some window for that. I mean, the reason I have trouble being really optimistic is because even if we get to a, to a somewhat ugly solution, you know, the balance of power has eroded, and it's not going to be a solution that looks very good to us, yeah. to be honest. And it's not going to look very good exactly. to the Afghans. It's not going to look very presentable to the region. But, you know, in, in a, a long-standing conflict like this, uh, the only success you're going to have is coming up with a relatively ugly solution that everybody can live with. And I think that we have, in a more realistic way than in the past, uh, moved toward a process that, that is trying to... So, so final question then yeah. for you, Joshua. So before April, you see some kind of a compact being achievable? Not before April. Khalil Zad thinks that you know it should happen before April because yeah. in April there will be new elections <coughs> yeah. and then you have to wait another five years or at least some some years, a few years. But actually the uh, reading of these talks like sort of between United States and Taliban, uh, they're quite different from Taliban side you hear different things from United States side you, <coughs> you hear, hear different things. Khalilzad is way more positive. He was just in Islamabad last week. Uh, he's way more positive. It seems that and uh, uh, but, well, he's a diplomat, maybe, you know, he has to put a kind of a, a brave or positive or happy face on it. Uh, well, that's what Khalilzad thinks. Well, what do you think? Uh, but, but, but Taliban are doing what they were doing before. Mm -hmm. they, they have not backed off, you know, look at the attacks. This is it's December. Normally, December, you don't have attacks. Yeah. And they are actually engaging in spectacular attacks, you know. And they're targeting, you know, hard hard targets, not only soft soft, mm -hmm. soft, soft uh, targets. So the message is very clear. Taliban are saying, we'll, we'll do whatever we, we are going to do and may, make concessions to us. And the United States at least has come to, to a point where they are ready to sacrifice the national unity government and have an interim government, which was a major Taliban demand. So is it so, likely before April that this whole I don't think setup so. would be? No, no. I, I, no, I don't think so. So we're in a battle of attrition, yeah. at least until yes, April. Yes, it will continue some sort of, sort of there will be a lot, of, a lot of positive noises, but I don't think that there, there's going to be much change uh, in the ground because the U.S. demand would be before they dismantle this uh, current setup to stop the hostilities or stop the attacks. I don't think that Taliban are going to agree to that. That will be difficult for them. Uh, to agree to, particularly when you reach March, when the fighting season starts exactly. in April, you know. So at that time, it will be very difficult to 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 kind of uh, uh, bring Taliban to. I mean, they will. They are already talking now. So in a way, they are sort of on the table. Uh, but stopping hostilities, stopping attacks, uh, terrorist attacks, or hard uh, hitting hard and soft targets, I think it will be difficult. So I'm actually a lot more positive than either of you. And I'll tell you one reason why. Sadiq Saab just called Khalilzad the diplomat. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Pakistan, Zal is anything but diplomatic. What I found remarkable about his appointment is that he has managed what has come out of his mouth and the people close to him with remarkable discipline. And there hasn't been a single moment in which he's, he's conveyed any kind of negativity towards Pakistan. I think Pakistan's <clears throat> willingness to release the people that were released is actually a big step forward. And I think Pakistanis should take credit for that. Um, but, but some of the credit also belongs to whatever diplomacy was happening behind closed doors. I don't know if Zal deserves the credit for that or not, but, but 
his success and his discipline suggest to me that it's okay for me to be optimistic. Would you would you be okay with that assessment? Or are you with these guys on on April being sort of a cutoff point and whether some accommodation or compact can be achieved before that? I think uh, some serious ground will be gained uh, in the up to April because uh, I think the seriousness, I, I hope at least, some sound vibes, some, some sounds of more seriousness than ever before in really finding a solution. But I think the solution that will be found right now will be so ugly that it will be unsellable for the position that the United States currently has. So you will probably need to see some worsening of situation for the appetite for a ugly solution to be more acceptable. Just uh, talking like a realist. Well, on that realistic note, this has been a, as always, uh, even with you guys individually, it's always such a, such a privilege, but I think this group uh, really, uh, I, I found it enlightening. I hope that, uh, that the people who have an opportunity to watch uh, the entire conversation will feel the same way. I deliberately set up the question about April because I'd love to have the three of these folks back and we can revisit these, uh, these assessments, the realistic ones and the, uh, the hopeful, dreamy-eyed, optimistic ones. Uh, with that, thank you very much for watching. Thank you, Joshua White. Thank you, Mama Sadek. Thank you, Hinata Bani Kar. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. This is Musharraf Zedi signing out from Tabad Lab Live. Thank you.